0: Okay, we are continuing together our study of the subject of the New Covenant. And we have said in our study of this covenant that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, pardon me, provides the background for the New Covenant and provides most of the information we have regarding it. And so understanding the Old Testament statements about the New Covenant is critical to understanding the New Covenant. So we've been Realizing that the, the, even though the new covenant is new in terms of its implementation, when Jesus came, it wasn't new in that its terms and promises were well known for many, many hundreds of years before it was ever instituted. And uh, all the information we have about the new covenant in the Old Testament is contained in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so we've been looking at these uh, three books, and we have seen that they have made numerous comments and statements about the nature of the new covenant. Now, the reason why the prophets, notably Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, have all this data about the new covenant is because they prophesied uh, at the point of the downfall of Old Covenant Israel and the destruction and the exile of the nation. And so we see these prophets prophesying during 2 Kings, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah in that time period. And so that last section of your Old Testament that has the prophets, all of them are all crunched up together in terms of chronological history in the book of 2 Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, so it was during the captivity. And at that point in time, uh, God was doing away with uh, uh, the Davidic kingdom. Uh, He was bringing it into dormancy. um, And uh, he was uh, causing uh, the nation to be destroyed. And the people were at this very low state of depression. There was questions about the Davidic covenant and whether it was going to be kept or not. And so the prophets began to give these exiled people hope. And the hope was, is that even though the tree of Israel had been cut down out of that stump, out of that root, was going to spring forth a stem of Jesse. Okay, And Jesse, of course, is the father of David. And of course, that stem or that new shoot that would come up out of that cut down stump was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who would grow into a tree that would fill the whole earth. And so <clears throat> what we have is God saying to Israel, Yes, you have failed, you've sinned, I've rejected you, but there's hope. And the hope is going to be in the son of David who's going to come, who's going to institute this new covenant that I'm talking about, and all the things that you failed to achieve and to experience under the old covenant will be fully achieved and fully experienced under the new covenant. So, I want to just briefly go through and review the material that we have covered thus far, and um, we have been looking at um, nine characteristics of the New Covenant, uh, promises that it contains that will be uh, experienced by those who are under the New Covenant. So, if you turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 9 and 10. We saw, first of all, that the first promise that God makes um, with reference to the new covenant is that he's going to be at peace with his people. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10. He says, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that i would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee for the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed but my kindness shall not depart from thee neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed saith the lord that has mercy on me so he says in verse 10 that he's going to make a covenant of peace it's going to be as verse 9 says an o sworn promise just like the noah covenant was And what he's going to provide in that uh, covenant of peace that's going to be implemented is that he will not be angry with his people. He will not rebuke them. He will only show them kindness and peace and mercy. And then we saw secondly, that not only would God be at peace with his people, but secondly, we saw that God would forgive their sins. So in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in verse uh, 34, Jeremiah 31.34, notice once again, this is an Old Testament passage from the prophets. In Jeremiah 31.34, God says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Here it is. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So this is part of the new covenant he speaks of in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And then he talks about the terms of the covenant. And one of those terms is that their sins and their iniquities, he will remember no more. So if you're in the new covenant, God's never going to bring your sins up to you rub your nose in them and demand an accounting out of you for them. And so on the day of judgment, uh, when God speaks to the righteous, he speaks only of their good works, all of their bad works, all of their sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And they're put as far away from God as the East is from the West. They were called to account in Jesus and therefore they will not be called to account in us. And then the third great blessing of the New Covenant is that we would possess humility and contrition for our sins. Ezekiel chapter 16. So we looked at Isaiah, now Jeremiah, then Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 60 to 63. One might think that if God is going to be at peace with his people and not be angry with them and not rebuke them, and God is going to remember their sins and iniquities no more. That The temptation would be, well, if all my sins are forgiven and none of my sins are going to be brought up on the day of judgment, then I can just sin up a whole bunch and no consequences, right? Well, we know, of course, there's consequences in this life for our sins in terms of God's chastis- chastisement. But people say, well, I can put up with that. I can endure that um, because this life is short. Um, no people who are in the new covenant don't think that way. And here's why in Ezekiel chapter 16 and in verse uh, 60, he says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth. And I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. And of course, this everlasting covenant is the new covenant. Then, Having been under this everlasting or this new covenant, then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, that thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame, when I am pacified towards thee for all that thou hast done saith the Lord God. So in the new covenant, for example, we celebrate the Lord's supper and we see the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. What does that remind us of? Well, part of what it reminds us of is our sins that, in, that, that, that caused him to have to go through that in order for him to be um, in order for us to be saved by him. And so uh, those who are in the new covenant are of a humble and a contrite spirit. They are not of a cocky and a complacent uh, and a presumptuous spirit. And so when he says here that in verse 62, I will establish my covenant with thee and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. They shall all know the Lord, right? Uh, he says regarding us and as we look back on our past life and our past sins, uh, it won't be an attitude of cockiness, but rather it will be an attitude of humility. So one of the marks of those that are in the new covenant is that they're very humble and contrite about their sins, and their disposition and attitude is, I'm ashamed of what I've done in the past. I sure don't want to do it anymore. And then the fourth thing we saw about the new covenant is that it results in regeneration. In Ezekiel 36, <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. This also goes with our memory verse today, Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20. Both of these passages are very parallel. They virtually repeat themselves with some minor differences. So Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 25 and 26, he says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. That's good news. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of the, your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So this idea of taking out the stony heart of our flesh and giving us a heart of flesh is regeneration. and one of the great promises of the New covenant is that God will transform our nature, and um, you know your nature is is the dominating, controlling a principle of of your life, of your being. And so what he says here is that he will give us a new heart and he will take away the stony heart out of our flesh. Now what this should help us to realize is that we don't have two natures. Okay. There's a certain, a school of sanctification that teaches that we have an old nature and a new nature at the same time, this old nature this new nature fighting with each other. And, um, you know, the one that you feed the most winds, you've heard that nonsense, okay? We're not both an old man and a new man at the same time. The old man was crucified and buried. And we were resurrected to be a new man in Christ. And so we don't have two natures. We are uh, always have one nature, either an old nature or a new nature, but never both at the same time. Um, Christ is unique in that He has both a human nature and a divine nature at the same time. Okay, um, but those are, uh, one, you know, result in, in in a single personality. Nevertheless, so we're not two persons; we're one person. What we have is the new nature and the flesh. Okay, and so the flesh is that which wars against the new nature. And so we don't have an old nature and a new nature. We have a new nature. We had an old nature and the flesh, and now we have the new nature and the flesh. Okay. So that's the biblical um, um, psychology that uh, we, we, we deal with. So what he's saying here is he's going to take out our old nature and give us a new nature. And then, of course, he's going to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the fifth blessing of the new covenant is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's in verse 27 of Ezekiel 36. Notice he says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And that's how you know that somebody has the gift of the Holy Spirit, not that they've spoken in tongues. Okay. But that as it says in verse 37, they they walk in my statutes and keep my judgments. And that doesn't mean they do it perfectly, but it does mean that's the dominating characteristic of their life. And so When we have the regenerate heart, when we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, um, uh, then we have um, uh, a new pattern of behavior and a new pattern of obedience. And then the sixth blessing of the new covenant is that we enjoy personal communion with God. We enjoy personal communion with God. Now you're in Ezekiel, turn back to chapter 34. In Ezekiel 34 verses 25 to 31, Ezekiel 34:25, God says, "And I will make with them a covenant of peace. There is our new covenant again; something yet in the future. And will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods." Now, you recall that one of the things that we said about this Old Covenant language is that the prophets sometimes describe the spiritual blessings of the New Covenant and the age to come in terms of the existing institutions of their day, in terms of the notable persons and events of the national life of Israel, and in terms of the blessings that they understood that were offered them under the Old Covenant. And so we often see things like huge uh, agricultural prosperity, uh, freedom from enemies around and uh, the rule and reign of David as being descriptive of new covenant blessings and experiences. And so as we read these things, we have to understand that um, he's um, helping them to understand things in language and terms that they can grasp. And so uh, David here is representative of Jesus. Um, Zion represents the church. Um, deliverance from warfare with surrounding nations speaks of our deliverance ultimately from the world and the flesh and the devil and these types of things. Okay, So we don't want to overliteralize the things that are said here. So notice um, what he says here. Um, in verse 25, and I will make them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And this also, of course, could be descriptive of the new heavens and the new earth. And I will make them and <clears throat> the places around about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in a season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hands of those that served themselves of them, notably Satan, of course. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely and none shall make them afraid, also be delivered from the world. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land. Neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. And they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God. And ye are my flock, the flock of my pasture are men, and I am your God. And so, what he's saying here when he says that I am your God. Is that I'm gonna have a shepherd sheep relationship with you. I'm gonna have a personal relationship with you. It says in in, um, John chapter 17 and verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so, one of the great blessings of the new covenant that's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34 is that I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach every man his brother and every man his neighbor saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so uh, one of the great blessings of the new covenant is that God is going to be uh, not some distant deity, not someone who is um, um, unavailable for access, but you recall that Uh, under the new covenant when jesus died on the cross the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom and the way into the holiest was made plain before the children of israel under the old covenant couldn't go into the presence of god only the priest and only once a year on the day of atonement with the blood Uh, but now the way into the holiest has been made plain we can come boldly to what the throne of grace the mercy seat uh, imagine what a, what a revelation that was to the Jews that they could just walk in the temple, walk through the holy place, walk right into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, and not be struck dead. They weren't even allowed in the first part of the building, much less the second part. And only the high priest went to the second part, and only once a year. And they tied a rope around his foot to yard him out of there in case he died while he was in there because of the glory of God. And now we can go right into the presence of God. Every one of us are priests with full and free and unfettered access uh, to the, into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. So that's one of the great blessings of the new covenant is nearness uh, and, and fellowship and communion with God. And uh, it's a great privilege that um, the, the Jews didn't have. And of course, it'll be fully realized when we're in the new heavens and the new earth and we are standing in the very presence of God. And uh, it says, and we shall see his face. And before that was always veiled, um, but it won't be. And uh, it's not now. Um, okay, and, and that brings us then to our, our new material. We, these, these seven points are what we've covered previously, and I want to get through these last three today, God willing. And so the seventh great blessing of the new covenant is the gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 45, the book of Isaiah chapter 45. What are your righteousnesses like? Well, like filthy rags, right? It says uh, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Uh, but the wonderful thing is, is that God provides us with a righteousness under the new covenant that is absolutely perfect. And so in Isaiah 45, verse 23, God says, Isaiah 45, 23, I have sworn by myself. Now, whenever you run across God swearing, you remember that's the sign of a covenant, right? A covenant is an oath sworn promise. And the only time God swears is in relationship to his covenants. So he says, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear or confess. Now you know where that's found, right? In Philippians chapter two, speaking of Messiah um, in his glory of the second coming. He says, surely one shall say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified. And shall glory. Now justification simply means to declare righteous. Okay. And what Justification does, it looks at the law, it looks at your behavior, and if your behavior is in perfect conformity to the law, you are declared to be a just person. You are justified in your behavior because it perfectly matches up to the standard of behavior. That's what we do in our courtrooms. somebody uh, is accused of breaking the law and upon the presentation of the evidence, it's demonstrated that no, they've kept the law, they're justified and sent out the door free, right? Uh, and of course, if they break the law, then they're not justified. They are condemned and the punishments are applied. Well, what God says here is that in the Lord or through the Lord or by means of the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and show glory. Well, how can we who broke God's law be justified by God? And the answer is he gives us a righteousness. All of our law breaking is imputed to Jesus Christ and all of Christ's law keeping is imputed to us. So when God looks at us, he sees no broken laws. He sees perfect obedience to the law and therefore he declares us just. And so he is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And so that's the, the great blessing of the new covenant is when you stand before God, he's going to see moral perfection because Christ presents us holy and unreprovable and unblameable in his sight. It says in Jude one verse 24, he presents us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. And so that's one of the great blessings that God has promised. in the word of his oath is that we will have perfect righteousness. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, and in verse 30, we have seen that God said, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified. In Romans 8 and verse 30 it says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified. So we see God does it all, right? He predestinates them, he calls them, he justifies them, he glorifies them and we do nothing, he does it all. And so consequently, um, one of the great blessings that is given to us in the new covenant is the perfect gift of righteousness. So, when you stand before God, Um, You won't have to hang your head in shame because all of your shame was put on Christ. And um, Christ is the lifter up of my head. You know, one of the things you see about people who are guilt-ridden and shameful is they walk around with their head down all the time. And they can't lift their head and look you in the eye. Imagine standing before God. You're going to be able to lift up your head and look him in the eye? Yes, you will. Because of the gift of righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The eighth blessing of the new covenant is um, holiness and obedience of life. Uh, Jeremiah 32. Verses 38 to 40. <clears throat> Jeremiah 32:38 <clears throat> God says in verse 38, "And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You recognize that language. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them, and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That I will not turn away from them. To do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts. That they shall not depart from me. And of course that's our memory verse for today. You recognize that. Okay. So one of the great blessings of the new covenant. As verse 40 says. Is that. <clears throat> God will always do us good. And we know Romans 8.28 says what? And we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And his purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. It's all the blessing contained. I mean, Romans 8.28 is a result of the new covenant. Okay? That's where it came from. It came right from here. And so when Paul writes Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord. It's right here. I will not turn away from them to do them good, verse 40. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Why can't you turn away from the Lord? Why can't you? You can't, can you? You've been tempted to. You do for a little while, sometimes. But then you go right back. Why? Because you're afraid. You fear God. You fear hell. You fear apostasy. Where did that fear come from? You look at the people around you as unsaved. Or are they afraid of that stuff? They laugh about it. But God put his fear in our hearts so that we would not, as it says in verse 40, depart from him. And that's part of the preservation that we enjoy in Jude 1. and verse 1, we've been talking about the marks of those to whom Jude is writing. They're called, They're sanctified and they're preserved. And we're gonna be looking at preservation next Sunday night, God willing. This tonight will be sanctification. But um, this is is how we're preserved, is God puts his fear in our hearts that we don't depart from him. And then the ninth and final blessing of the new covenant is um, preservation and perseverance. And of course, this is verse 40 as well. Not only holiness and obedience of life, but preservation and perseverance. God says in verse 40, I will not turn away from them to do them good. And there's the perseverance. I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. And so he which hath begun a good work in us will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we'll have holiness and obedience of life in our memory verse today. God says, and I will give them one heart and uh, I will put a new spirit within you and I will take uh, the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Why? That you may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them. Okay. So that's one of the great blessings of the new covenant is that God will preserve us and therefore we will persevere and we will not apostatize. And so it's the sacrifice and shed blood of Jesus that purchased for us and provided all these gifts to us and made them all possible. Um, In Isaiah 42, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, It says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now Israel was in captivity. Israel was crushed. Israel was destroyed. The temple was burned. The Davidic kingdom was turned over and and destroyed. And and God says to Isaiah, Comfort my people. Now what's he going to comfort them with? Isaiah 40. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. I said 42. 42. Yeah, I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm sorry. Chapter 42, verse 1. Thank you, Gary, for looking over at your wife and saying, where's he at? Okay, Isaiah 42. We're all on the same page, right? Verse 1. Here it is. I was was looking at that and thinking, where am I going to go with this? (laughs) Because I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't know why it wasn't right. Okay, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Who is that? It's Jesus, isn't it? Okay. Now, notice what it says in verse 6 and 7. God is speaking to his son here. He says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And so this is what Jesus is going to do for us in the new covenant. And you know what? He especially says he's going to do it for the Gentiles. That's us. Okay? And so this God's servant whom he has chosen, whom he upholds, who he's put his spirit on, you remember the spirit came on him at his baptism in the form of a dove, it says of him that he will give us him for a covenant to the people. Jesus is the essence of the new covenant himself, him and his works. Okay. And what is he going to do? He's going to be a light. He's going to open blind eyes. He's going to bring us out of the prison of bondage to Satan. And out of the darkness of the blindness of human depravity into the glorious light of the kingdom of God. And so what we have then with this new covenant is all of these blessings. And that's why we love to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because what is the Lord's Supper? It's the token of the new covenant. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord looks on that and our participation on that. And he is reminded of these nine promises he's made to us to fulfill them and keep them. Just like every time God looked at the rainbow in the cloud, which is the token of Noah's covenant, he was reminded, I will not send a flood on the earth. Every time he looks at the token of the new covenant, which is the Lord's Supper, he says, I will bring these nine blessings on my people that sit here and partake in this ordinance. And that's why partaking in the Lord's Supper is such a precious thing. Because it's not just a reminder to us of Jesus. It's a reminder to God of his covenant promises. Amen. And he has recommitted every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper to all over again, supply those nine blessings to us. So uh, we'll talk more about the new covenant as we go on. But uh, this is the very heart and the core of what we enjoy as the people of God. Well, let's pray together. Father how grateful we are for your blessed determination to make covenants with your people. And Lord, we see that you are a covenant keeping God. And Father, how thankful we are for the promises of the new covenant, what security it brings, what joy, what optimism, what confidence, what peace. Father, we pray that as we Reflect on these things. We wouldn't just go out the door and forget them, but that all during the week, Father, we would think about the new covenant, the blessings that it contains, and the goodness that you have shown to us in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and not just give us some mere meager crumbs of blessing, but, Father, um, a universe of blessings that is limitless, and boundless. Thank you, Father, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.